Book One, Chapter Four, Sections One, Two, and Three of In the Days of the Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In the Days of the Comet by H. G. Wells. Book One, Chapter Four, Sections One, Two, and Three. War. Section 1. From that moment when I insulted old Mrs. Verrall, I became representative. I was a man who stood for all the disinherited of the world. I had no hope of pride or pleasure left in me. I was raging rebellion against God and mankind. There were no more vague intentions swaying me this way and that. I was perfectly clear, now, upon what I meant to do. I would make my protest and die. I would make my protest and die. I was going to kill Nettie, Nettie, who had smiled and promised and given herself to another, and who stood now for all the conceivable delightfulness, the lost imaginations of the youthful heart, the unattainable joys in life, and Verrall, who stood for all who profited by the incurable injustice of our social order. I would kill them both, and that being done, I would blow my brains out and see what vengeance followed my blank refusal to live. So indeed I was resolved. I raged monstrously, and above me, abolishing the stars, triumphant over the yellow waning moon that followed it below, the giant meteor towered up toward the zenith. "'Let me only kill,' I cried. "'Let me only kill!' So I shouted in my frenzy. I was in a fever that defied hunger and fatigue. For a long time I had prowled over the heath towards Lowchester, talking to myself. And now that night had fully come, I was tramping homeward, walking the long seventeen miles without a thought of rest. And I had eaten nothing since the morning. I suppose I must count myself mad, but I can recall my ravings. There were times when I walked weeping through that brightness that was neither night nor day. There were times when I reasoned in a topsy-turvy fashion with what I called the spirit of all things. But always I spoke to that white glory in the sky. "'Why am I here only to suffer ignominies?' I asked. "'Why have you made me with pride that cannot be satisfied, with desires that turn and rend me?' Is it a jest, this world? A joke you play on your guests? I, even I, have a better humor than that. Why not learn from me a certain decency of mercy? Why not undo? Have I ever tormented, day by day, some wretched worm, making filth for it to trail through, filth that disgusts it, starving it, bruising it, mocking it? Why should you? Your jokes are clumsy. Try... Try some milder fun up there, do you hear? Something that doesn't hurt so infernally. You say this is your purpose, your purpose with me. You are making something with me, birth pangs of a soul. Ah, how can I believe you? You forget I have eyes for other things. Let my own case go. But what of the frog beneath the cartwheel, God, and the bird the cat has torn? After such blasphemies, I would fling out a ridiculous little debating society hand. Answer me that. 
A week ago it had been moonlight, white and black, and hard across the spaces of the park, but now the light was livid and full of the quality of haze. An extraordinarily low white mist, not three feet above the ground, drifted broodingly across the grass, and the trees rose ghostly out of that phantom sea. Great and shadowy and strange was the world that night. No one seemed abroad. I and my little cracked voice drifted solitary through the silent mysteries. Sometimes I argued, as I have told. Sometimes I tumbled along in moody vacuity. Sometimes my torment was vivid and acute. Abruptly, out of apathy, would come a boiling paroxysm of fury, when I thought of Nettie mocking me and laughing, and of her and Verall clasped in one another's arms. I will not have it so, I screamed. I will not have it so. And in one of these raving fits, I drew my revolver from my pocket and fired into the quiet night. Three times I fired it. The bullets tore through the air. The startled trees told one another, in diminishing echoes, the thing I had done. And then, with a slow finality, the vast and patient night healed again to calm. My shots, my curses, and blasphemies, my prayers, for anon I prayed, that silence took them all. It was, how can I express it, a stifled outcry, tranquilized, lost, amid the serene assumptions, the overwhelming empire of that brightness. The noise of my shots, the impact upon things, had, for the instant, been enormous. Then it had passed away. I found myself standing with a revolver held up, astonished, my emotions penetrated by something I could not understand. Then I looked up over my shoulder at the great star and remained staring at it. "'Who are you?' I said at last. I was like a man in a solitary desert who has suddenly heard a voice. That, too, passed. As I came over Clayton Crest, I recalled that I missed the multitude that now, night after night, walked out to stare at the comet and the little preacher in the waste beyond the hoardings who warned sinners to repent before the judgment was not in his usual place. It was long past midnight, and every one had gone home, but I did not think of this at first, and the solitude perplexed me and left a memory behind. The gas lamps were all extinguished because of the brightness of the comet, and that, too, was unfamiliar. The little news agent in the still high street had shut up and gone to bed, but one belated board had been put out late and forgotten, and it still bore its placard. The word upon it, there was but one word upon it, in staring letters, was WAR. You figure that empty mean street, emptily echoing my footsteps, no soul awake and audible but me. Then my halt at the placard, and amidst that sleeping stillness, smeared hastily upon the board, a little askew and crumpled, but quite distinct, beneath that cool, meteoric glare, preposterous and appalling, the measureless evil of that word. War. Section 2 I awoke in that state of equanimity that so often follows an emotional drenching. It was late, and my mother was beside my bed. 
She had some breakfast for me on a battered tray. "'Don't get up yet, dear,' she said. "'You've been sleeping. It was three o'clock when you got home last night. You must have been tired out.' "'Your poor face,' she went on, "'was as white as a sheet, and your eyes shining. It frightened me to let you in, and you stumbled on the stairs.' My eyes went quietly to my coat pocket, where something still bulged. She probably had not noticed. "'I went to Chexhill,' I said. "'You know, perhaps. I got a letter last evening, and as she bent near me to put the tray upon my knees, she kissed my hair softly. For a moment we both remained still, resting on that, her cheek just touching my head. I took the tray from her to end the pause.' "'Don't touch my clothes, Mummy,' I said sharply, as she moved towards them. "'I'm still equal to a clothes-brush.' And then, as she turned away, I astonished her by saying, "'You dear mother, you, a little I understand. Only, now, dear mother, oh, let me be, let me be.' And with the docility of a good servant, she went from me. Dear heart of submission, that the world— and I had used so ill. It seemed to me that morning that I could never give way to a gust of passion again. A sorrowful firmness of the mind possessed me. My purpose seemed now as inflexible as iron. There was neither love, nor hate, nor fear left in me. Only I pitied my mother greatly for all that was still to come. I ate my breakfast slowly, and thought where I could find out about Shamptonbury, and how I might hope to get there. I had not five shillings in the world. I dressed methodically, choosing the least frayed of my collars, and shaving much more carefully than was my wont. Then I went down to the public library to consult a map. Shamptonbury was on the coast of Essex, a long and complicated journey from Clayton. I went to the railway station and made some memoranda from the timetables. The porters, I asked, were not very clear about Shamptonbury, but the booking office clerk was helpful, and we puzzled out all I wanted to know. Then I came out into the Coley Street again. At the least, I ought to have two pounds. I went back to the public library and into the newspaper room to think over this problem. A fact intruded itself upon me. People seemed in an altogether exceptional stir about the morning journals. There was something unusual in the air of the room, more people and more talking than usual, and for a moment I was puzzled. Then I bethought me. "'Tis war with Germany, of course. A naval battle was supposed to be in progress in the North Sea. Let them. I returned to the consideration of my own affairs. Parload. Could I go and make it up with him, and then borrow? I weighed the chances of that. Then I thought of selling or pawning something, but that seemed difficult. My winter overcoat had not cost a pound when it was new. My watch was not likely to fetch many shillings. Still, both these things might be factors. I thought with a certain repugnance of the little store my mother was probably making for the rent. She was very secretive about that, and it was locked in an old tea-caddy in her bedroom. I knew it would be almost impossible to get any of that money from her willingly, and though I told myself that in this issue of passion and death 
No detail mattered. I could not get rid of tormenting scruples whenever I thought of that tea caddy. Was there no other course? Perhaps, after every other source had been tapped, I might supplement with a few shillings, frankly, begged from her. These others, I said to myself, thinking without passion for once of the sons of the secure, would find it difficult to run their romances on a pawn-shop basis. However, we must manage it. I felt the day was passing on, but I did not get excited about that. Slow is swiftest, Parload used to say, and I meant to get everything thought out completely, to take a long aim, and then to act as a bullet flies. I hesitated at a pawn shop on my way home to my midday meal, but I determined not to pledge my watch until I could bring my overcoat also. I ate silently, revolving plans. Section 3 After our midday dinner, it was a potato pie, mostly potato with some scraps of cabbage and bacon, I put on my overcoat and got it out of the house while my mother was in the scullery at the back. A scullery in the old world was, in the case of such houses as ours, a damp, unsavory, mainly subterranean region behind the dark living-room kitchen that was rendered more than typically dirty, in our case, by the fact that into it the coal cellar, a yawning pit of black uncleanliness opened and diffused small crunchable particles about the uneven brick floor. It was a region of washing up, that greasy, damp function that followed every meal. Its atmosphere had ever a cooling steaminess, and the memory of boiled cabbage and the sooty black stains where saucepan or kettle had been put down for a minute Scraps of potato peel caught by the strainer of the escape pipe, and rags of a quite indescribable horribleness of acquisition, called dishclouts, rise in my memory at the name. The altar of this place was the sink, a tank of stone revolting to a refined touch, grease-filmed and unpleasant to see, and above this was a tap for cold water, so arranged that when the water descended it splashed and wetted whoever had turned it on. The tap was our water supply, and in such a place you must fancy a little old woman, rather incompetent and very gentle, a soul of unselfishness and sacrifice, in dirty clothes, all come from their original colors to a common dusty dark gray, in worn, ill-fitting boots, with hands distorted by ill-use, and untidy graying hair, my mother. In the winter her hands would be chapped, and she would have a cough. And while she washes up, I go out to sell my overcoat and watch, in order that I may desert her. I gave way to a queer hesitation in pawning my two negotiable articles, a weekly indisposition to pawn and Clayton, where the pawnbroker knew me, carried me to the door of the place in Lynch Street, swathingly, where I had bought my revolver. Then came an idea that I was giving too many facts about myself to one man, and I came back to Clayton, after all. I forgot how much money I got, but I remember that it was rather less than the sum I had made out to be the single fare to Shamptonbury. Still deliberate, 
I went back to the public library to find out whether it was possible by walking for ten or twelve miles anywhere to shorten the journey. My boots were in a dreadful state. The sole of the left one also was now peeling off, and I could not help perceiving that all my plans might be wrecked if at this crisis I went on shoe leather in which I could only shuffle. So long as I went softly they would serve, but not for hard walking. I went to the shoemaker in Hacker Street, but he would not promise any repairs for me under forty-eight hours. I got back home about five minutes to three, resolved to start by the five train for Birmingham in any case, but still dissatisfied about my money. I thought of pawning a book or something of that sort, but I could think of nothing of obvious value in the house. My mother's silver, two gravy spoons and a salt cellar, had been pawned for some weeks since, in fact, the June quarter day, but my mind was full of hypothetical opportunities. As I came up the steps to our door, I remarked that Mr. Gabbitus looked at me suddenly round his dull red curtains with a sort of alarmed resolution in his eye and vanished, and as I walked along the passage he opened his door upon me suddenly and intercepted me. You are figuring me, I hope, as a dark and sullen lout in shabby, cheap, old-world clothes that are shiny at all the wearing surfaces, and with a discolored red tie and frayed linen. My left hand keeps in my pocket, as though there is something it prefers to keep a grip upon there. Mr. Gabbitus was shorter than I, and the first note he struck in the impression he made upon anyone was of something bright and bird-like. I think he wanted to be bird-like. He possessed the possibility of an avian charm. But as a matter of fact, there was nothing of the glowing vitality of the bird in his being. And a bird is never out of breath, and with an open mouth. He was in the clerical dress of that time, that costume, that seems now almost the strangest of all our old-world clothing, and he presented it in its cheapest form. Black of a poor texture, ill-fitting, strangely cut, its long skirts accentuated the tubbiness of his body, the shortness of his legs. The white tie below his all-round collar, beneath his innocent large spectacled face, was a little grubby, and between his not very clean teeth he held a briar pipe. His complexion was whitish, and although he was only thirty-three or four perhaps, his sandy hair was already thinning from the top of his head. To your eye now he would seem the strangest figure, in the utter disregard of all physical beauty or dignity about him. You would find him extraordinarily odd, but in the old days he met not only with acceptance but respect. He was alive until within a year or so ago, but his later appearance changed. As I saw him that afternoon, he was a very slovenly, ungainly little human being indeed. Not only was his clothing altogether ugly and queer, but had you stripped the man stark, you would certainly have seen in the bulging paunch that comes from flabby muscle and flabbily controlled appetites, and in the rounded shoulders and flawed and yellowish skin, the same failure of any effort toward clean beauty. You had an instinctive sense that so he had been from the beginning. 
you felt he was not only drifting through life, eating what came in his way, believing what came in his way, doing without any vigor what came in his way, but that into life also he had drifted. You could not believe him the child of pride and high resolve or any splendid passion of love. He had just happened. But we all happened then. Why am I taking this tone over this poor little curate in particular? Hello, he said with an assumption of friendly ease. Haven't seen you for weeks. Come in and have a gossip. An invitation from the drawing-room lodger was in the nature of a command. I would have liked very greatly to have refused it. Never was invitation more inopportune. But I had not the wit to think of an excuse. All right, I said awkwardly, and he held the door open for me. I'd be very glad if you would, he amplified. One doesn't get much opportunity of intelligent talk in this parish. What the devil was he up to? was my secret preoccupation. He fussed about me with a nervous hospitality, talking in jumpy fragments, rubbing his hands together, and taking peeps at me over and round his glasses. As I sat down in his leather-covered armchair, I had an odd memory of the one in the Clayton dentist's operating room. I know not why. "'They're going to give us trouble in the North Sea, it seems,' he remarked with a sort of innocent zest. I'm glad they mean fighting. There was an air of culture about this room that always cowed me, and that made me constrained even on this occasion. The table under the window was littered with photographic material and the later albums of his continental souvenirs, and on the American cloth-trimmed shelves that filled the recesses on either side of the fireplace were what I used to think in those days a quite incredible number of books, perhaps eight hundred altogether, including the reverend gentleman's photograph albums and college and school textbooks. This suggestion of learning was enforced by the little wooden shield bearing a college coat of arms that hung over the looking-glass, and by a photograph of Mr. Gabbitus in cap and gown in an Oxford frame that adorned the opposite wall. And in the middle of that wall stood his writing-desk, which I knew to have pigeonholes when it was open, and which made him seem not merely cultured, but literary. At that he wrote sermons, composing them himself. Yes, he said, taking possession of the hearth-rug, the war had to come sooner or later. If we smash their fleet for them now, well, there's an end to the matter. He stood on his toes and then bumped down on his heels and looked blandly through his spectacles at a watercolor by his sister. The subject was a bunch of violets above the sideboard, which was his pantry and tea-chest and cellar. Yes, he said as he did so. I coughed and wondered how I might presently get away. He invited me to smoke that queer old practice, and then, when I declined, began talking in a confidential tone of this dreadful business of the strikes. The war won't improve that outlook, he said, and was very grave for a moment. He spoke of the want of thought for the wives and children shown by the colliers in striking merely for the sake of the Union, and this stirred me to controversy and distracted me a little from my resolution to escape. I don't quite agree with that, I said, clearing my throat. If the men didn't strike for the Union now, 
If they let that be broken up, where would they be when the pinch of reductions did come? To which he replied that they couldn't expect to get top price wages when the masters were selling bottom price coal. I replied, that isn't it. The masters don't treat them fairly. They have to protect themselves. To which Mr. Gabbitist answered, well, I don't know. I've been in the four towns some time, and I must say I don't think the balance of injustice falls on the master's side. It falls on the men, I agreed, willfully misunderstanding him. And so we worked our way toward an argument. Confound this argument, I thought. But I had no skill in self-extraction, and my irritation crept into my voice. Three little spots of color came into the cheeks and nose of Mr. Gabbitus, but his voice showed nothing of his ruffled temper. You see, I said, I'm a socialist. I don't think this world was made for a small minority to dance on the faces of everyone else. My dear fellow, said the Reverend Gabbitus, I'm a socialist too. Who isn't? But that doesn't lead me to class hatred. You haven't felt the heel of this confounded system. I have. Ah, said he, and catching him on that note, came a rap at the front door, and as he hung suspended, the sound of my mother letting someone in, and a timid rap. Now, thought I, and stood up resolutely, but he would not let me. No, 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 said he. It's only for the Dorcas money. He put his hand against my chest with an effect of physical compulsion and cried, Come in. Our talk's just getting interesting, he protested, and there entered Miss Ramell, an elderly little young lady who was mighty in church help in Clayton. He greeted her. She took no notice of me and went to his bureau and I remained standing by my chair, but unable to get out of the room. "'I'm not interrupting?' asked Miss Ramell. "'Not in the least,' he said, and drew out the carriers and opened his desk. I could not help seeing what he did. I was so fretted by my impotence to leave him that at the moment it did not connect at all with the research of the morning that he was taking out money. I listened sullenly to his talk with Miss Ramell, and saw only, as they say in Wales, with the front of my eyes, the small flat drawer that had, it seemed, quite a number of sovereigns scattered over its floor. "'They're so unreasonable,' complained Mrs. Ramell, who could be otherwise in a social organization that bordered on insanity. I turned away from them, put my foot on the fender, stuck my elbow on the plush-fringed mantelboard, and studied the photographs, pipes, and ashtrays that adorned it. What was it I had to think out before I went to the station? Of course, my mind made a queer little reluctant leap. It felt like being forced to leap over a bottomless chasm, and alighted upon the sovereigns that were just disappearing again as Mr. Gabbitus shut his drawer. I won't interrupt your talk further, said Miss Ramell, receding doorward. Mr. Gabbitus played round her politely and opened the door for her and conducted her into the passage, and for a moment or so I had the fullest sense of proximity to those, it seemed to me there must be ten or twelve, sovereigns. The front door closed and he returned. My chance of escape had gone. End of Book One, Chapter Four, Sections One, Two, and Three
Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas.